Hello, and welcome back from your weekends. I think I should begin with a uh, declaration of the drug I'm on right now. Uh, so I've been having terrible knee pain, and the orthopedic surgeon said, well, you can take Tylenol PM. And I found that <laughs> the Tylenol PM stays in my system quite a long time. So if I'm even more incoherent than usual today, it's the Tylenol PM talking. Um, I guess it just has like an antihistamine in it or something. Anyway, it doesn't, doesn't do good things to me. All right. A little bit later in the show, uh, there is an awful lot of talk, obviously, about uh, who gets to come into the United States. Well, a Gallup World poll found out that actually there's an unusually high percentage of people who are in the United States who wish they could get out and live someplace else. We'll tell you a little bit more about that with a guest from uh, the poll itself. Uh, and then in the final segment, I'll take your phone calls. But I also want to talk a little bit about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, and her unusual ability to deflect criticism uh, or not just nearly def- not merely deflect it, but uh, turn it back on the criticizers. Uh, in a somewhat related topic, uh, we're going to begin the show uh, talking about uh, newly minted Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Uh, by now, most of you know it was kind of a, a flurry of, uh, of criticism and 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 counter criticism over the weekend uh, that she had used a four-syllable compound word referring to an edible relationship uh, in reference to President Trump. It was This was at a, a move-on rally or some kind of move-on uh, event. Well, let's hear a little bit about what that sounded like. That's uh, this is A1. And when your son looks at you and says, Mama, look, you won, bullies don't win. And I no. said, baby, they don't because we're going to go in there. We're going to impeach the mother. So uh, joining us, well, I've, first of all, I mean, this is uh, occasion, as I say, a storm of criticism, uh, not only from the right, but also a little bit from Democrats, uh, also some defenders of her. Uh, Michael Weir, our guest right now, is one of the people who wrote about that, that this weekend. He's the chief strategist of the AND campaign, A-N-D campaign, which links uh, biblical truth and social justice, uh, and author of Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned from the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. America. Uh, and uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation, Michael Ware. Hi, it's good to be with you, Colin. So you, I mean, the headline, which you probably didn't write in the Washington Post, was Profan- <laughs> profanity about Trump is wrong. It harms the Democratic Party's policy and political objectives. You kind of, in the, in the body of the article, you sort of split this into two questions, the use of that particular word and then the use of impeachment uh, as a, an applause line in kind of a, a form, uh, informal work up the crowd uh, situation. So let's take them in those two parts, uh, if that's OK with you, and, and maybe start like the, uh, start uh, with the word. Is the word itself a big problem? I think it is a problem. I mean, you, you just heard the, the clip and the word had to be bleeped out. Well, why is that? Well, it's because we're on public radio. That's for the public. We want it to be accessible to all kinds of people. And we have a certain level of, of standard and, and that standard should be reflected no matter how often this president undermines all kinds of levels of decorum. Um, I, I thought it was a significant step, not just that she uh, used it, but that she then doubled down on it. You know, t- typically, uh, if something like this happened, uh, uh, a politician would say, well, you know, if I had known that this would be made public, I probably wouldn't have used that language. And then, and then, Fine. Right. So just to sort of help you out with this, sure. we have a clip of Congresswoman Tlaib not doing what you just said a congressman might do. 
we're gonna move on. I mean, look, I grew up uh, with a fierce grandmother uh, who said it like it is, and that's part of who I am. Uh, but I tell you, I'm unwavering, and everyone knows that, uh, from taking on huge big bullies right back at home in the district, uh, I'm not gonna back down from this biggest bully that now I have to take on. He called you disgraceful, or he called your comments disgraceful. Yeah, he needs to put a mirror up. So, yeah, so you, you're, suge- you're suggesting there was another way for her to go at that moment and say, you know, I, I, I regret the choice well, of the word or whatever. Yeah, I mean, first, it's important to say uh, President Trump has absolutely no leg to stand on mm. here. Uh, and frankly, m- most Republicans uh, do not to have excused this president. I, I'm a Democrat. I've spoken out about this president's rhetoric and not to mention his vile policies uh, uh, over the last few years. I thought it was important to... Uh, uh, apply the same standard to my own uh, my own side to the Democratic Party, and I have to say I'm, I'm really concerned about this conflation of vulgarity with conviction, as if just by saying that word that that somehow added credibility to the fact that she's committed to uh, uh, opposing this president. I, I think we head into a very dangerous place in our politics that has already been lived out in the campaign of Donald Trump when sort of vulgarity and crassness is uh, some show of authenticity. Uh, I don't think that's right at all. Some people might say, hey, look, you know, Abraham Lincoln used to tell a joke that had the S word in it. Uh, we just, the movie Vice is out right now. We see uh, a recreation of Dick Cheney walking onto the floor of the Senate and telling uh, Pat Leahy to go F himself. Uh, LBJ right. used very salty language. When we got the uh, Watergate tapes, uh, Nixon was using very salty language. These are all white men. Their careers were not derailed any more than Donald Trump is in a tremendous amount of trouble for talking about S-hole countries. But now you've got a woman, a woman of color, a, a not non-white woman using this word, and somehow or other, the it's a national emergency. Is that entirely fair? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can't speak for others. I, I do think some of those, uh, some have criticized Khalid, but haven't found issue with some of the other uh, instances you mentioned. Should should consider that possibility? I, I would say, you know, a lot of what you mentioned were, you know, private. Uh, utterances uh, uh, that were meant to be private, uh, you know, walking up to Leahy. Uh, I, I certainly... Uh, but that was, on, uh, but that, that was on the floor of the Senate. I don't know how private... I mean, she's speaking at a move-on rally. He's on the floor of the Senate, the vice president of the United States addressing a senator. Vice presidents preside over the Senate. Well, um, well, I mean, well, that, right. that, that's, that's not a private situation. Well, well, well. well it was probably in the sense that there was no, I believe it was reported out, but I'm not interested in getting into the uh, semantics over, over, over any, uh, over Dick Cheney and Leahy. Other of the instances you mentioned were uh, private. As I mentioned in, in the uh, piece, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, there is the, uh, the, the kind of uh, idea that uh, once things are made public, I don't know what, what uh, Dick Cheney said, uh, uh, after after that, but many politicians have, would have said, you know, I would not have used uh, that language. But to double down as a method of public advocacy is wrong. And I'll say I wrote about this in my book, Reclaiming uh, Hope, which is that it's important for folks to understand that uh, there are political strategists who believe that vulgarity is 
is not just a show of authenticity, but actually useful for mobilization. So I, I talk about an incident on a, a campaign that I was working on where um, the use of curse words in the subject lines of uh, fundraising emails was justified uh, on, on, the, uh, on the basis that when there were cuss words in the subject lines of email headers, uh, the click rate, the open rate of the emails went up by a few percentage points. And I, I just think we need to be very careful about, uh, about sort of using language that many, that A, uh, outlets like yours need to bleep out, mm-hmm. uh, B, that many people, uh, find objectionable, um, that many children, uh, their parents would not allow their children to speak that way or to read that language in newspapers, that when you're an elected official, you need to be, you need to be cognizant of the fact that um, you hold a public-oriented position that is not like a Howard Stern, that is not, but, but actually a position of dignity where you're put in the position of making decisions for a range of uh, of people, and you're speaking for the people that you represent. And uh, look, again, this is not the crime of the century. Uh, this is not about uh, Congresswoman Tlaib, as I, as I say in the piece. I, I hope that she, I hope that this uh, uh, doesn't, uh, I don't think that this should be a line in her uh, in her biography. I don't think that this should follow her career. But it, but listen, if, if we accept uh, that this is appropriate language for uh, politicians to use uh, in light of either Donald Trump or because it's 29. That's not something that we can pull back. We won't be able to revisit this question a couple years down the line if we were silent now and say, well, you know what, uh, now the circumstances have changed. You know, this really isn't advisable uh, if we were silent about it now. Yeah, I mean, my reaction to this, I, first of all, I think you're right about the idea of politicians using it to um, whip up the troops and, and gain authenticity. I think you can go as far back as, it must have been 19, 1988, I think George Bush 41, the president, former president who just died, uh, coming out of his debate with Geraldine Ferraro. I think he famously said, we kicked a little ass last night. Um, and, yeah. and I think that was his attempt to make himself sound less like a Greenwich preppy and more like a, right. a person of the people. Um, yep. So um, the other part of this is uh, that um, that she did talk about. I mean, the, the first part of this leading up to that word was that we're going to impeach this guy. Uh, right. And that's the other part of your piece, that that impeachment is probably a more complex process uh, and, and less of a punchline at a rally. Yeah, well, you know, I want to acknowledge she um, she did uh, write in the Detroit Free Press uh, longer case for impeachment, but I was struck watching the the video that I mean th- this was not there was no uh, it, you know she said this and it was a it was a mic drop moment she she uh, you know this crowd of you know political activists and sort of uh, you know DC folks cheered, they hugged, they high-fived. Um, uh, and, and, and what it, if the Democrats want to and are going to move forward on impeachment, the official line from Democratic leadership is, we're waiting for the Mueller investigation and we're not prejudging anything. Well, <laughs> saying we're going to impeach the, uh, the uh, uh, and then especially with the curse word attached, doesn't exactly reflect a deliberative 
deliberative process that's only focused on the facts, it sounds like impeachment is a vindictive process of political retaliation. And that, that is uh, uh, that is harmful to uh, the Democrats politically. It's harmful to the impeachment process. If it gets underway, Republicans will have a very uh, uh, effective uh, a sign and uh, example to show to the American people that this this actually isn't about uh, sort of a sober consideration of uh, the legal activities of this president. And so, so yeah, it's counterproductive, not just to our political culture, which we've already talked about, but it's counterproductive to the very concrete aims that she uh, has said in in follow up interviews. Uh, you know, she's so committed to, and that she won't back down on. Right. So, I mean. My just my own gloss on this is you don't hand the other side a weapon it can use. uh, And that's what you're part of what you're saying here is that or in sports, you always say, don't say anything. The other team can put up on the bulletin board in the locker room to motivate itself as a rallying cry. And she kind of has done that here. Although I guess just for the sake of argument, it might be interesting to talk about the fact that impeachment ultimately is a political process. I mean, there's probably grounds to impeach Donald Trump right now, except that there aren't grounds to impeach Donald Trump right now because you can't do it if you don't have the votes. Uh, It ultimately does come down. I mean, it's, it's a poorly defined crime constitutionally and, and a murkily discussed cr- crime or, or basis of removal, even in the world of legal scholarship. It ultimately comes down to whether or not you have the votes, whether you can have the support of the American people while you do it. So things that are said and done that are political aren't necessarily off limits, I wouldn't think. I mean, there may be official proclamations about waiting for the process to play itself out, but there are ways in which impeachment is political and and does require a certain rallying of the public will, albeit this is probably the wrong kind of rallying. Well, right. It's definitely a political process, but but I just want to, we need to make sure we're being consistent in the last, like, so right at at the end of the day, a Senate confirmation hearing for uh, a judge that's been accused of sexual assault is, in the end of the day, a political process. And if we want to view and talk about politics as merely who can assemble the most power and wield it as recklessly uh, and effectively as as they can, then we could then then that could be the road that we head down. We could we could head down the road where. Anything that's said in politics is justified on the basis of whether it's for the right cause and whether it's effective or not. Um, I, I don't think that's. I don't think that that's going to be a productive uh, uh, road to follow uh, in the short term, in this case, but in the long term for our public dialogue. We already have a politics right now um, that is based on contempt. That is based on the idea that the other side doesn't just. Like, disagree with you, but but hates you. And if we allow this sort of invective to, you know, not just be used in one-off instances, but I, I found an interesting Senator Schatz from Hawaii tweeted, um, if I use profanity about climate change, will we talk about that for, uh, for 48 hours? He was kind of critiquing criticism of Tlaib. But I actually, I wanted to respond to him and say, actually, the lesson we're, we're learning is, is yes. And the lesson that politicians will learn from this is, yes, if I use profanity, it will equal conviction and it will be a good way to raise the issues I want to raise to the top of the heap. And that's going to be very corrosive on our politics. I mean, I liked you worked in the Obama administration. Um, That's right. 
I liked what Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. Uh, and that's essentially kind of what you're advocating here, too. But there's there's another point of view here, which is, you know, I think there are a lot of people listening right now who either are, are uh, liberal Democrats or left of center or, or people of color or all of the above who are going, wow, we just have to take it all the time. We have to take Donald Trump saying horrible things uh, about people of color and, and about women. Uh, we, ha- we have to put up with all this. Uh, and when somebody plays... You know, sings to their level or plays their game. Uh, you know, her picture goes up at the post office like she's you know some kind of outlaw. Um, that it doesn't seem fair. I, I don't know. Are there two sides here anyway? Well, I, I think want to be very well. There, there's a lot to say in response. Sure. The, the first thing I'll say is, listen, President Trump debases himself when he speaks in the way that he does. Yes. He, he uh, criticizes others. Yes, he undermines other others' dignity. But uh, we we can't uh, we can't miss the fact that there is a, a corrosion of the soul um, uh, that exists for our president. And so the the, the right and proper response to that isn't I'm going to uh, so, sort of do the same thing to myself. Uh, in other words, uh, th- there's this. There's this sense, which I think is, uh, you're right to raise it. It is a argument that's being had right now that civility amounts to kind of a unilateral disarmament in our politics right now. Um, and I think that misses the fact um, that speaking in a dignified way is dignifying of oneself and of the political process. That one of the problems, not all the problems, if, if Donald Trump spoke uh, in the most respectful way po- possible, but still separated children from their families at the border. Uh, th- that wouldn't change anything about the evil uh, nature of his policies. Uh, but part of the case I try to make in my op-ed is that they're not disconnected. That's not a surprise that a president who would call for a protester at his rally to be assaulted would somehow not be sympathetic to the moral uh, implications of separating children from their families, that a, that a president who shouted lock her up would not be uh, so uh, quick to uh, condemn the murder of a journalist by a human rights violating regime, that, that you can't disconnect the rhetoric and the heart of our politics from the substance of it. The heart is the substance. That's a great argument. Uh, And Michael Weir, uh, thank you very much for this conversation. Chief strategist for the AND campaign, author of Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. I wrote a piece about this subject, uh, the Tlaib comments uh, in The Washington Post. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks, Colin. Appreciate it. All right. So we're going to take a little break here. We're going to shift gears the way we typically do on Mondays. Uh, Yeah, a lot of people, um, a lot of talk about people trying to get in the United States. Not so much talk about people who might want to get out, but they exist. We're probably not done with that preceding topic. I think we have a show in the works on Thursday about how the language is changing. It won't be specifically about that. So over the weekend, uh, Betsy Kaplan and I are always looking over the weekend for things to talk about uh, on the scramble, things that really grab our attention. We're emailing back and forth about them. Uh, I came across this um, poll by Gallup uh, that I just blew my mind. I just thought it was really, really fascinating. So we're going to talk about it right now with Julie Ray, managing editor for World News at Gallup. She was involved in the recent Gallup World Poll. 
that looked at, among other things, how many people who live in the U.S. would like to leave the U.S. So, Julie Ray, uh, first of all, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so maybe let's just start with the question. Uh, I'll read it. I'll make, I'll make sure that I read it correctly, though. Ideally, if you had the opportunity, would you like to move permanently to another country or would you prefer to continue living in this country? Now, this is a question that you've asked before, right? Sure. We've been asking it actually for the past decade in about 140 countries around the world. Um, and so what happened this time? So are you talking about the United States or well, let's start, the world let's, in general? Let's, let's home in for now on the United States. because I want to back off towards the world in general a, a little bit later. Okay. So uh, beginning in 2017, uh, we started to see an increase in the number of Americans who said that they would like to move to another country permanently. Uh, previously to that, uh, we'd asked it during the last year of the Bush administration and throughout the Barack Obama administration, and numbers were pretty flat. Um, so this this increase was something that we really wanted to dig into and find out what was going on. So when we say numbers flat, oh, we're talking uh, Bush administration, 11 percent, uh, Obama administration, 10 percent. But suddenly right. we've, got, we've got a spike. What, what are the numbers now? Uh, so it's 16 percent for the United States in both 2017 and 2018. So the number, it wasn't a blip in 2017. Um, it, it stayed just as high in 2018. So that's, I mean, it's like a 50 percent increase, basically. That's a substantial yeah. jump. Um, so uh, what about crosstabs? Do we know anything about you know, men versus women, young versus old? What are the demographics? Sure. So, of course, when I saw the spike, I wanted to dig in to see exactly where this was coming from. Um, and so a couple areas really stood out um, there previously under the Bush and Obama administrations. We hadn't seen any gaps between men and women, but we saw uh, in the last year of the Obama administration and the first year of Trump, we saw numbers among women uh, double. Now, we didn't see the same increase among men, although it ticked up slightly. Um, we also saw increases among um, young people. Um, most of the increases that we saw um, in age was um, everybody who's younger than the age of 50, but particularly those in the, in the youngest group, and so those under the age of 30. You know, when poll questions are worded, it's always interesting. A poll question isn't like something you're saying to a magical genie where you have to, you know, exactly get it right. Or, But, I mean, it's significant how things are worded, and this question does include the word permanently. And, and I, I wonder about that just in, in terms of, I mean, if it's a reaction to some particular set of policies or presidential administration, permanently is a pretty big step to take, considering the fact that Donald Trump, for example, won't always be president. What, what about that word permanently? Sure. We ask that because, of course, people move for other reasons. Um, they go on vacation. They move for temporarily for work or for school. And so we really wanted to get at people who really wanted to make that concrete step mm -hmm. um, as opposed to temp movement for temporary reasons. Um, how comfortable are you say, in saying that that of this jump, and it's, as we said, 10 or 11 in the two previous administrations, 16 now. That's a really big jump. Um, how comfortable are you about saying that President Trump is the primary reason for it? Well, we did a regression analysis. So even, um, you know, digging into that a little bit more, we ran the numbers by the different demographics and looking at whether um, job approval factored into it. 
Um, and one thing that stood out is that in the Bush and Obama administration years, um, job leadership approval wasn't a factor in people's desires to move. But once Trump took office, it was. Hmm. So um, do we know where people want to move to? Did you get that granular? Yes. Um, we ask everybody around the world where they'd like to move, including uh, Americans. And Canada stands out as the number one top desired destination for Americans. That's been true in a number of years, but we saw an increase um, in 2018. Um I would just say parenthetically, it's a little harder to move to move to Canada than it used to be. They've changed some of what they're looking for in terms of new sure. residents. But just for anybody who's you know fantasizing about this, uh, they should know. All right, so let's back up and, and look at the world. First, first, first of all, how typical uh, worldwide of 140 or 160 countries, however many it is, um, how typical worldwide is 10% wanting to leave the country, 16% wanting to leave the country? Well, the 16% we did, um, we just released those numbers a couple weeks ago, um, and that 16% in the U.S. is about average for the world. Um, now, that's that's taking into consideration all the different countries and the populations we have around the world. But um, in some places like Sub-Saharan Africa, you see numbers up in the 60s and the 70s in terms of the percentage of the population that would like to leave. So that probably also skews the average a little bit, right? Um, it, it's weighted by population, mm-hmm. um, so that's that's something to take into account. That we're also looking at India and Russia and the United States and China in that mix. So, are there are there countries that people just don't? I'm the, I'm thinking like Scandinavian socialist democracies. Probably people don't want to leave, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, there's there's a percentage in, in every population that wants to go. Yeah. Um, and 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 mostly among the most mobile segments of those those populations, like what we see in the United States. Um, younger people who are less likely to have ties, um, long-term uh, jobs, families um, that would keep them maybe anchored. Um, it, we, we typically see that desire is higher among the youngest population. Which is sort of odd, too, because when you think about it, another group of people who could conceivably move and do move are, are the oldest part of the population if they're still reasonably able because it's not as big a commitment. I mean, you move to Costa Rica for the last 20 years of your life or the last 15 years of your life. It's somehow or other. Not, it's not like you're trying to figure out whether your kids, or kids are going to fit in in Japan or Norway's schools. Sure. But you also have the means need to have the means to do so. Absolutely. All right. So um, you must therefore know a little or have a reasonable surmise about how the world would look if everybody could live wherever they want. I mean, based on where people want to move, how many people want to move out of any given country. Um, What can you say about that? Sure. Um, We have also looked because we ask um, people, you know, if they'd like to leave, but we also ask where they'd like to go. We're able to develop a net migration percentage for each country. So we're able to see how much their their population would potentially change if everybody moved where they wanted to go. Um, so we see big increases. Of course, the United States is, is a top desired destination. It has been for years. Every single year that we've asked this this question, um, it's been the top one. Um, and so they would see the U.S. would see up to a 50% increase in the total population, just total population. Um, and then it would also see a pretty big jump for um, the, the most educated population. So it would get, get a pretty good brain gain, but also a pretty big influx of young people. Um, talk a little bit about Japan. Japan's a, an interesting case. Sure, sure. Um, 
So recently, um, Japan changed its um, guidelines for immigration because, of course, it's got an aging population. And um, so they've currently uh, relaxed their standards. And so they're trying to encourage more people to come into the country. So this follows years of having pretty restrictive immigration policies. So when we looked at the potential net migration scores for Japan, um, so the ins versus the outs and the change in the population, um, it's pretty reflective of those uh, restrictive policies because their population would only uh, change by 1%, and that's in an upward direction. Now, they would also, though, at the same time, we were able to look at brain gain, brain drain, they would see uh, their educated population, so that we're talking about the people who have college educations or higher, we would see that percentage go down, actually. And then uh, we would see an influx of younger people. Hmm. Um, so so I'm, we're doing this uh, conversation by phone. I'm sitting in Connecticut. Connecticut also has a, pop, a population drain problem to a certain degree anyway there's, there's a lot of concern about out migration here and it's all there's also it's kind of seeps into the psychology of the state too uh you know how, how we think about ourselves and how others think about us and i'm wondering about that on a on an international basis in other words a country like the u.s if the number of people wanting to out migrate goes up by 50 percent uh, i don't know do we get a bad reputation that way internationally no i don't think that that would actually be something that that people would would think about regular on a regular basis in terms of their evaluation of the United States. They they think more about the leadership and the economy. But you said internationally, no. But how about nationally? How about um, do we know anything about what it does to our or how it sort of maybe even intersects with or overlaps with our ideas about ourselves, ourselves uh, and our own nationhood? I, I don't know. Is there something kind of demoralizing about knowing that? Well, you know, the biggest implication I would say is that it would potentially have a takeaway um, in business and the economy. So you're looking at people that you potentially could lose or workforce that you could potentially lose or attract. So I think it has has more of an economic implication um, than than one to the global psyche or the U.S. psyche. Do you, you talked about Japan. Do countries typically act on this information in some way? In other words, um, do they either loosen up their standards about uh, of migration or make some kind of effort to make the country less desirable to leave? Based on our numbers, I, I am not aware of any any direct response that that a country has taken based on on the release of these data. All right. So I think they have a lot of things that they take into consideration when they're when they're developing a policy. Of course. Well, Julie Ray, uh, managing editor for World News at Gallup, uh, she was involved in the most recent Gallup World Poll that found that record numbers of people want to leave uh, the United States. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay. Now let me tell you about what's coming up here because uh, this is this will be audience participation time as we sometimes do on Mondays. Although I'm going to talk a little bit at the beginning of the next segment, but I've been very interested in watching. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, another newly minted member of Congress, who seems to have an unusual flair 
<laughs> for responding. First of all, I think she's a magnet for personal criticism. I think that is because the right is very afraid of her. Uh, I think they're seeing a kind of politician that they haven't seen before. Uh, and there's a way that they've been attacking her that's very specific to her. Uh, but she's also shown a remarkable ability uh, to come back uh, with her own rejoinders, and a lot of them are pretty good. So um, I'd love to talk to you about this, and the conversation can go any number of directions. The number, if you want to be part of such a conversation or whatever the you know next the second stage of that conversation would be, uh, the number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. No guests in the final segment, just you and me. I'll see you on the other side of this break. We lived in glass huts made of clay when I heard my doctor say, Back up, we're moving to Canada. Everybody's going to Canada. Pack up, we're moving to Canada today. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, who wants to move to Norway, and me, Kion Wolf. I want to move to the planet Turkana 4. Amanda Fish wants to move to the Pacific Ocean. The part of Bill Curry was played by Christian Bale, speaking of which tomorrow's show is about Satanism. And now, back to Colin. The reason for speaking of which, uh, Chris, uh, Christian Bale last night at the Golden Globes thanked Satan uh, for the inspiration uh, of how to play Dick Cheney. All right, so um, I want to talk about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, first of all, first of all, I want to uh, fix a mistake. Uh, I just realized during the break that I made a mistake in the original uh, interview, first interview with Michael Weir. It must have been in 1984, right, that George H.W. Bush said he kicked a little ass in his debate with Ger- Geraldine Ferraro. I said 88. If you fix the mistake during the show, does that mean it's not, does it not count as a mistake? This is also something that's come up a little bit with Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. So before I get into my uh, rap about her, I won't literally be rapping, um, let's hear her last night on 60 Minutes. There are people who say you don't understand how the game is played. Mm-hmm. Do you? I think it's really great for people to keep thinking that. You want folks to underestimate you? Absolutely. That's how I won my primary. (laughs) Um, So I want to start by talking about nicknames. Uh, and I guess I should lay my card uh, cards on the table. Uh, In grade school, I had such a baby face that uh, kids started calling me Gerber, much to my chagrin. Uh, and I kind of hoped that wouldn't follow me to my next school. I was sort of in, not in the, the same school system anymore. Uh, but it eventually did catch up with me. People, Somebody told somebody who told somebody. And so kids at that school started calling me Gerb. And that turned into Gerb the Superb. And then finally into Kareem Abdul Gerbar. I'm not making this up. And then they started just calling me Kareem because they'd forgotten why they were calling me that in the first place. And, of course, I was quite happy to be called Kareem. Uh, In college, I got the nickname McAdoo, which was used so consistently that when I graduated, some freshmen and sophomores went up to my parents and said, congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. McAdoo. It hadn't really sunk in with them. That wasn't my real name. And I mention all of this because conservative media, which is collectively terrified of the new congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has attacked her for all kinds of strange things, including her adorable college dancing video, uh, the clothes she wears. Uh, Somebody tweeted that they were too good for somebody who claimed to come from humble origins. Uh, And yes, uh, they uh, have attacked her now for supposedly changing her nickname from her college uh, nickname. Uh, the somewhat influential right-wing blog Gateway Pundit unearthed the following scoop. 
I would put that in quote marks, in quote marks, yes, uh, the following scoop about Ocasio-Cortez. In college, they called her Sandy. I know. This is obviously Pulitzer material that they've dug up this fact that she used to be called Sandy. Now she's calling herself Alexandria. I think that's worthy of a, a Pulitzer. So do my friends, PJ and Squee. Um, so I'd also like to point out in the recent Texas Senate race, uh, Ted Cruz went after Beto O'Rourke for using that nickname, which is given to him as a baby. His real name is Robert. Cruz even ran a jingle. I remember reading stories. Liberal Robert wanted to fit in, so he changed his name to Beto uh, and hit it with a grin. Um, of course, as some of you are probably screaming at the radio right now, Cruz's real name is Rafael Edward Cruz. Uh, he definitely didn't change that because it, he thought it sounded too Hispanic. No, definitely, definitely not. But this isn't really about nicknames. It's really just about how scary Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is. Can I just call her AOC? That's what they call her in the blogs and stuff like that and Twitter. It's easier. How scary AOC is to the right and how pervi- impervious so far she is to their cheap shots. Um, and they ought to be scared of her. Um, she's telegenic. She's smart. Uh, her policies are attractive. Uh, she has a legitimate American dream story that includes, as you probably know, her father died at the age of 48. I think she was in college at the time. Her mother had to go back to cleaning houses and driving school buses just to sort of keep things financially together for the family. Uh, she was a bartender and a waitress when she decided to run for Congress. And she is New York quick with those snappy comebacks. Now, I want to—I uh, got a little bit more to say, but I want to invite you guys to call in about this too, because I want to talk a little bit about what I think is an emergent new type of politician—a uh, politician often of color, often a woman uh, who uh, gives as good as she gets. This kind of harks back to our the first segment of the sh- show when we were talking about Talib too—that uh, we're seeing a new kind of motivated, direct. A snappy kind of politician, and there's going to be a level of discomfort with it. Wondering what you think about all this, our number, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. So you may have noticed that when they attack Ocasio-Cortez, she's very quick with comebacks. And this most recently happened when Republicans booed her. It wasn't like a lot of booing, but there was audible booing when she cast a vote for Nancy Pelosi as speaker. Uh, Her response, her social media response was, don't hate me because you ain't me. Um, You know, and to a certain degree, Nancy Pelosi is an interesting person to bring up because she has gotten defined over the years uh, by the right. And, And she's, in the last election, people who were running for office would kind of often run against Nancy Pelosi, even though she wasn't their opponent, because she was, she'd been defined. She'd been turned into a symbol. She's a powerful woman from the Bay Area with pretty left-leaning ideas. Um, And what Ocasio-Cortez seems to be doing, and I think, you know, ultimately you'll see Johanna Hayes fit into this pattern pretty well, too, and uh, some of the other uh, incoming uh, freshman class uh, of members of Congress, including possibly Tlaib, depends on how she does with this that particular mess that she got herself into. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of them do this. They're, they're not going to step back into the background. They're not going to be deferential. Uh, and the ones who are young and good at using social media and understand how Twitter works, and Ocasio-Cortez really understands how Twitter works. I mean, there's another guy who's in the White House who seems to understand in a very primitive way how, how Twitter works, but he's certainly not the only person. You're going to see a different style in American politics, and I think a lot of it's going to be really good. I think there's, going to, there's a way in which 
the people who are good at this, and, and Ocasio-Cortez, I think we would all agree, is the big star right now, and she's the one who really kind of understands this style. You know, you don't sit back and take it. You give it back at a certain level. You know where the line is and you don't cross it. That was a problem for Tlaib. She might have actually crossed a line a little bit there. You know who your audience is and who, who you're talking to and where you are at, at all moments. And you know how to play the game. At the beginning of this segment, you heard her talking to, uh, to Anderson Cooper, uh, who said that asked her if it was true she didn't know how to play the game. Of course she knows how to play the game. She knows how to play the game better than a lot of people who are in Congress right now because the game has changed a lot. Uh, anyway, let's uh, go to the phones here, 860-275-7266. I think we have Fidelio in Danbury. Hi, you're on the air. Yes, how are you doing? My name is Fidelio. I just wanted to say real quickly, the world is changing. Um, the, the kids are taking over, and our country is becoming very diverse as you can see as the new Congress is. And a lot of people are just scared of, you know, it's, I don't mean to sound racist or anything, but it's not the old white guy running the show anymore. You know, it's like this country is very diverse, and a lot of people have problems with it, and with her, and I think that's the problem they have. Yeah, and, you know, I was thinking a, a lot about that in connection with Tlaib, too, because, you know, I, I still, I guess I'm sort of old enough and old-fashioned enough to think, yeah, don't give the Republicans a weapon to use against you. Don't use a word like that because then they can try to to diminish you uh, as a person who uses that kind of word. But, I mean, the counterargument is that people do talk a little bit differently these days. I mean, everybody's lining up to go see Hamilton. That particular word yeah. appears in Hamilton. Um, so, you know, and, and I think this new group of incoming younger members of Congress and younger politicians, uh, Fidelio, as you're suggesting, they're probably going to use language a little bit differently. Yeah, and not only that, just to finish up, you know, I'm, I just turned 47 a couple of days ago, this Saturday, and I'm seeing, like, you know, even from my generation, the way that my nephews are being raised is just it's just changing so fast. And sometimes people have a hard time adjusting to change. Yeah. So you live in Danbury? Yes, I live in Danbury. All right. Well, maybe we'll talk to you a little bit later in the year. I think there may be an inter- interesting mayoral race uh, this year, uh, too. So uh, yeah. maybe you'll call in on another day. Tell us how that's going. All right. Uh, let's go back to the phones. 860-275-7266. I'm just going to go down the line here. Elena in Glastonbury. Hi. What's on your mind? Hi. So I am 17 and I am involved in politics very deeply. Uh, I'm a strong Democrat and I really love Ocasio-Cortez's message. I think being a young person, being living in the Trump era, having someone who can talk to you, you know, face to face as a person and not talk down to you as a teen is really important because I find that when you have, you know, these older white male politicians, they tend to not take young people so seriously. And I think Ocasio-Cortez coming in and sweeping her primary and winning her election shows that young people have hope in politics. Well, yeah, I think also as politicians look at the turnout, uh, look at uh, seats that flipped in 2018, they're going to take young people more seriously than they've taken them for a long time, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's really exciting. I mean, I helped out with Senator Murphy's campaign, and I felt that there were so many young people helping out on that campaign. And it was so powerful because, you know, I was hearing from the older folks who were volunteering that, you know, young people didn't do this in, you know, the early 2000s and before that. And it's important that, you know, young people get involved. And as someone who is involved, I'm trying to, you know, 
scramble to get all my friends to get involved as well. So you should be eligible to vote in 2020, right? Absolutely, yeah, and I'm very excited to do so. What are you looking for in a presidential candidate? You said you work for Murphy. He's not, you know, in the picture yet, I, but he might be out, might be I in the picture. Definitely would love to see Senator Murphy run. Um, I know that, you know, he possibly could be thinking about it, but who knows? Um, but he's I, a but he's a white guy. Don't you want a woman of color or something like that? The kind of candidate that excites you now? I mean, I'm thinking um I definitely enjoy, I would love to see someone like Kamala Harris or, you know, a strong woman run Mm -hmm. who, you know, is younger and connects with the younger generation. And I think Chris Murphy, even though he is a white guy, connects with the younger generation. And he has that message and that voice, especially when he speaks about things like gun control and healthcare. They really speak to younger people who are struggling with those different things every day. They saw Parkland. They see what's going on with Obamacare. They understand that, you know, um, they understand that these are things that affect our lives. And I think that the way a candidate speaks to that is important. All right. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me, Elena. We've got a lot of people uh, on hold now. I want to get to as many of them as possible. Let's go to Chris in New Hartford. Hi, Chris. You're on the air. Hi. How are you doing? Good. So I think that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, She's hated so much by the right because she sets up a form of cognitive dissonance. Um, They would rather that she stay in her lane because, I mean, look, we got the wall right now. Um, The right wants to demonize Mexicans coming into the country, and she kind of looks sort of like that. And I think it just it doesn't conform to uh, what they've set up in their minds as the enemy. Right. It's sort of now I'm going to botch this line, but was it what's Eddie, uh, Eddie Murphy's line in 48 hours? The scariest thing in the world to you is a black man with a badge and a gun. And, and she's kind of scary in the way I think that's what you're saying. She's kind of scary to them, too. She's a, a woman of color. She's a Latino woman of color. Uh, and she's a member of Congress. Exactly. All right. Thanks for your call, Chris. I bet you I did mess up that line. I'm going to hear about it, too. It's worse than the 1984 mistake I just made. All right, let's go to Alila in East Hartford. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Um, what I really like about um, Alexander, um, Representative excuse me, Ocasio-Cortez, is that uh, she has you know, really changed the game. And I think the rules that people used to play by, by playing nice, I think we saw that in the Obama administration that didn't work you know, playing their game. And I think what she's doing is, um, you know, changing the rules. And I think a lot of other representatives, women representatives who were recently elected to Congress are going to be changing those rules. The status quo is no longer acceptable. And I'm looking to see what her and others um, who have been recently elected bring. But, you know, what you don't know, you fear, and people don't know what she's going to say. And to your point, she knows how to really use social media savvy. So I, um, I think that's also um, what's exciting and, you know, what we want to see come from her. Right. Thank you. Alila, those are great points. I do. Uh, one of the things that I struggle a lot with is the exact question, Alila, that you just raised, which is if we play by the rules and they don't play by the rules, then they win. And uh, Emily Bazelon brought this up a long time ago, I think, in connection with the Merrick Garland non-nomination uh, when Mitch McConnell just basically decided to change the rules to suit himself and, and just not allow the nomination to proceed. Um, well, you know, it's like, well, if they're going to do that and we play by the rule, the other side plays by the rules, then the side that doesn't play the, by the rules is advantaged uh, by their their disregard of this. So, 
the sense may be that uh, some surprises might be coming at uh, them from the Democratic side um, may change this up a little bit, too. I mean, there's I struggle with this, though, because I, I want the rules to work. I want there to be a system, you know, that involves orderly exchanges of power and stuff like that. Uh, and if nobody plays by the rules, then you've got anarchy. All right. I probably have time for one more call. There's a whole bunch of them on the board. Well, Jack, Jack from Montague. Hi, Jack. You're on the air. Hey, guys. Hi. Good, or good afternoon. How are you? Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm calling just to say that as a dad, I'm 53 years old, and I've got two teenagers, and the, just to watch them experience this has been a, a, an eye-opener of sorts. I think uh, that all the new politicians coming up really represent what they're kind of immersed in on a daily basis at school. I mean, the, the kaleidoscope is not my kaleidoscope, what I remember as a kid growing up. And frankly, I think the people that are pushing back so hard against that sort of new uh, environment are just people that uh, have kind of woken up to a world that maybe they don't recognize or don't want to recognize. And I'm not sure who the comedian is that said this a long time ago, but it was like, you know, what would George Washington say if he was here today? And, And the answer was, you know, who let all the slaves out? It's just a different world and things are going crazy and 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 kids are feeling empowered. And that makes me as a dad very proud. All right. Uh, well, Dad, you get the last word today. Uh, this has been an episode of The Scramble, which Betsy Kaplan uh, usually puts together, unless Scott Brady's doing it. Well, if he's been on the board, thanks to everybody who called in, too. It's just fun to do this. Uh, I really like to occasionally, anyway, not have a guest in the final segment or maybe not have a guest for the entire show and just hear from people. People have really interesting stuff to say. Uh, Stay with us for the rest of the week. We've got a show about Kafka on Wednesday, the way the language is changing uh, on Thursday. And I think we're going to do the news from New Haven on Friday. So be with us the whole way.